0: Before I got
1: on the line with Tony Rom from The Washington Post, I looked up my cell phone bill. I went to the AT&T website, downloaded the PDF, and went through it, line by line. And underneath the monthly charge and the various taxes, there was this one line with a small fee for $1.85. That is an amount of money that
2: you are paying that helps subsidize this very big historic program that the U.S. has had in place for many years now to help people who can't get online and afford phone service in the way that you and I and perhaps some of your listeners can.
1: That program, the Universal Service Fund, pays for a bunch of things, including rural healthcare technology and Internet access for some schools and a special program called Lifeline. Lifeline is a digital safety net that is supposed to help low-income Americans get phone and internet service.
2: What Lifeline does, essentially, is it gives a monthly stipend to people. It's $9.25 or so. And that stipend will subsidize their phone connectivity. Um, There's just one problem. And it's that Lifeline plans
1: kind of suck. The telecom companies market specific plans for Lifeline customers, but the speed and data limits are paltry. Plus, the program itself is riddled with problems. Many of the people who are eligible aren't even able to sign up, leaving Americans who desperately need to connect simply unable to do it. And so it has really become this big question in this very
2: digital age, uh, especially during this pandemic, Are the programs that we have in place to really help people afford access to the Internet uh, and and communicate with each other at a time when they can't meet in person, are they doing what they need to be doing? Are they sufficient? And increasingly, the answer appears to be no.
1: Today on the show, how a program meant to connect low-income Americans with phone and Internet service has instead kept them stuck as second-class digital citizens, and how the pandemic has made it all worse. We're talking about smartphones and broadband today, but back when Lifeline was created, neither existed. The program actually dates back to the Reagan administration, and the idea then was to help low-income Americans afford phone service. And yes, the program's been updated, but the services it pays for today are far from what a typical commercial plan offers. It means you have a version of cell phone service
2: that would probably look like You know, completely foreign to most people who are walking around with iPhones and Android devices and things of the sort. So, first, you're typically getting a plan that is capped at minutes. Do you remember the days when you used to have to like worry about if you were talking to your friends only on nights and weekends and stuff because you didn't want to run up? Yeah. So, for people who are on Lifeline, like that is always the thing. Like they are capped at about a thousand minutes a month, and anything more than that, they have to pay. The second is that you are getting uh, data caps. So some people might have unlimited data on their phone. They can watch as many TikTok videos as they want, um, as I do on a nightly basis. But for folks on Lifeline, you are capped around, I want to say, about four gigabytes. So you can do some stuff with that, right? You can browse the internet, but, you know, you can't get on Zoom every day and participate in online classes every day and, and do the other kinds of things that I think people have done so consistently throughout the pandemic.
1: Let's talk about the pandemic a little. In the story that you wrote, I was really struck by the description of a man named Harold Valentine. He's a 78-year-old stroke survivor in D.C. Tell me about him.
2: Yeah, Harold is like many people I spoke with for the story, uh, who rely on programs like Lifeline, but have discovered in very unexpected, direct ways how Lifeline does not work well for them. So, you know, Harold gets, you know, he 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 participates in a program. The nine dollars and twenty five cents is paid on his behalf to a carrier, and he gets his thousand minutes a month and his few gigabytes of data a month. And that, for the longest time, was enough to kind of get by in this city because he was still able to go out and see people or. He could go to the library to access the internet, whatever um, the case may have been. He had other tools available to him. But then the pandemic happened, and some of the things that he liked to do the most uh, shifted online which for you and I might not be a big deal, but for someone like Harold, it has been a serious problem. So, for example, he participates in this uh, regular chat through a local hospital here uh, that helps people who deal with short-term memory loss and people who have survived strokes and things of the sort. Um, It's called club memory. And he no longer can participate in the same way as some of his peers. You know, some of them are online, transacting through Zoom. You know, they're talking to each other. They can see each other. Um, He can't. He's got to dial in using his phone. Uh, He can't stay the entire conversation because he knows that he doesn't have enough minutes to do this. Uh, And he told me that he was afraid of participating fully because if something happened to his family, you know, how would he be able to talk to them? What if he had exhausted his minutes by the end of the month? Most of us do not think twice about signing on to a Zoom meeting. We just sort of get angry (laughs) about having to participate in the first place. But for so many people, it is a luxury to be able to participate in those Zoom meetings with the video turned on. Um, It is a luxury to be able to speak to family members without running into various obstacles.
1: Harold's story was really poignant for me. And then I also read a part of your piece where you talked to a doctor who suddenly realized that her patients were dealing with issues like Harold Valentine's. That it wasn't just this one man trying to figure out how to kind of make his life work with these tremendous limitations, but this doctor saying, oh my gosh, how do I, how do I stay in touch with sort of my patient population here? What was happening?
2: Yeah, you know, in, in in her case, Dr. Ebony Winford, I spoke with her. She's, you know, based in a clinic in Tennessee and you know, she told me that her trouble has been talking to patients since everything's shifted to telehealth. In communities like hers, uh where the digital divide is pretty prevalent, you know, shifting to telemedicine is not just as, as simple as calling some people or, you know, using some Zoom calls online the doctor herself is a behavioral health specialist. She had this one patient who she couldn't get a hold of for a month. And she thought it was kind of weird that she couldn't get a hold of this woman um, for her you know, regular check-ins. And what she later discovered is that she had used up all of her minutes on the Lifeline program planning her brother's funeral. Um, he had died of COVID. She had used all of her allotment on the Lifeline program to help plan for that and then no longer had phone access for the remainder of the month. Um, And when I heard that, it like really like took the oxygen out of me.
1: When you wrote about this, you really walked through a series of disasters that changed the way presidential administrations think about getting people connected. Um, Hurricane Katrina under the Bush administration being a big one. I, I covered Katrina and it was very hard to reach people because particularly Um, the most marginalized communities simply did not have digital access and and telephone access in a lot of ways. How do you think crises have shaped the way Washington thinks about these programs like Lifeline?
2: It's a great question. I mean, Typically, Washington doesn't kind of get its stuff together until something bad happens, even outside the context of broadband internet and so forth. But it really is the case that as lawmakers have had to confront Uh, digital inequalities head on, as they've seen their constituents kind of grapple with these challenges directly, they have kind of woken up to this issue. Like we have always heard these stories about students and families and workers who are sitting in library and fast food parking lots just getting Wi-Fi. But I think folks really began to internalize it during the pandemic, because even some of those public options were no longer available to people who couldn't get on the internet. Uh, so people kind of woke up in Washington and began to ask the question of, OK, we know there are about 18 million people, if not more, who either can't get online because they don't have access to good Internet or can't afford it because the economics are just not good. What do we do to help those 18 million people?
1: When we come back, the fight to fix lifeline in Washington. Even though it's pretty apparent in Washington that Lifeline is not living up to its promise, what to do about it is a lot less clear. It's been a political football before. Back in 2012, Republicans falsely circulated a rumor about Obama phones, characterizing the Lifeline program as free cell phones for welfare recipients. It became a dog whistle campaign trail catchphrase for the Tea Party. The idea even made it into Senator Rand Paul's response to the State of the Union in 2013. For those who are struggling, we want you to have something infinitely more valuable than a free phone. We want you to have a job and a pathway to success. After that, the program went through a few years of policy tug-of-war. The Obama administration tried to expand it. The Trump administration tried to scale it back. But none of these efforts really improved the quality of the service for the people who depend on it. I mean we, we should be clear about something. Like Lifeline
2: does help people, right? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's not the case that this program has failed everybody and the whole thing should be torn down. I think that would scare people. Um, there, there would be plenty of families who would be hurt. But it's definitely the case that we have created essentially a second class of smartphone users in this country. There are the people who can afford to have access and then there are the people
1: who can't. All of this has come up as Congress has been trying to hammer out a pandemic relief bill that will likely include more money for broadband access. And that has sparked a larger and more divisive conversation about what the government ought to do to help people get connected and narrow the digital divide. Like a lot of fights in Washington, um, the policy fights around Lifeline come down to money. How much does it cost overall? Well, it sort of depends. I mean, the Universal <laughs> Service Fund is a
2: $9 billion program, and that money is split across a couple buckets. That includes the program we're talking about, Lifeline, and it yep. also includes other things to build out internet architecture and help schools get online and so forth. The issue, though, is not just about how much money we spend. It's about who's paying. Right now, that is paid for through fees that are essentially imposed on your your regular monthly bills. But there's this question of whether we should expand the fees? Should white should, you know, Congress and the White House put forward some plan for the government to pay for it?
1: Should we tax somebody else uh, to pay for all of this? Something's got to give. Tony says there are two conversations happening around broadband access right now. the short-term fix and the harder, longer term one. The first is that we're all
2: talking about another round of coronavirus aid through another stimulus package, right? And so that has given us an opportunity to take a look at a number of gaps that exist in the economy and try to plug them on a short-term basis, and one of those is broadband. So in the proposal that Congress passed in December and in the new proposal that they're considering now, there are buckets and buckets of billions of dollars of aid to help people get online, including one program that'll help people pay for their monthly bills if they fall behind. Uh, the second, though, is this long-term conversation about what happens after all of that, and that's been the more difficult conversation because it's really going to cut to the to the to the heart of like what the government's role here is in providing a new safety net program for the digital age.
1: Lifeline has cost two point four billion dollars. That is a raindrop of money in the scheme <laughs> of the federal budget. Why is something so small so divisive? Partly because
2: of where the money
1: comes from.
2: So remember how we started the conversation, it was it was about your bill. And yeah. the money that you pay every single month goes into this program for Lifeline and then is redistributed to people in the form of subsidies. And so there are really two choices going forward. In one world, we expand the number of places where that fee applies. So maybe someday you could see fees applied to your internet bills, maybe a dollar or so a month. And you can easily see the pros and cons there, right? You, you quickly, it becomes a question of, oh, the government just imposed a new tax. Mm-hmm. So lawmakers are kind of reticent to do that, even though they know it's probably not a bad idea. The other side of this is that Congress would do it. So, you know, to your point that this is like a drop in the bucket, you know, Congress could just throw a couple billion dollars every every year or two um, at authorizing some really great, amazing program to help people get on the internet. But the concern there, especially among Democrats, is that we would then have yearly fights over internet access, much in the same way that we have yearly fights over everything, like unemployment hmm. insurance and other safety net benefits. So in both options, there's a solution. We we are not short of ideas here, um, but we are perhaps short of political will.
1: We're not just talking about financial barriers, though. One thing I noticed in your reporting is how few of the people Lifeline – was meant to help are are actually using it. What is happening there?
2: Right. There are kind of a couple issues. The first is that the service sucks. You right, let's just call it what it is. If you're if you're the kind of person that uh, has to choose and you're deciding how you want to spend a limited amount of money every month and you see that this program is not going to fit all of the things you need, it's not going to give you this the the service you need, then some people just don't apply for it at all. The second reason is because signing up to do so is kind of like worse than doing your taxes in some cases, I, I think. Um, the government had this very fancy system it tried to put in place uh, a few years ago to help people sign up online to kind of automate this whole process of figuring out if you were eligible. The government did that because there were some historic concerns about fraud in the Lifeline program. And what ultimately happened is that the technology, which we know here in Washington as the, quote, national verifier, uh, didn't work so well. And so those difficulties in applying end up deterring people.
1: Is the question raised about fraud legitimate?
2: It certainly is. Uh, you know, it, it it is undeniable that Lifeline has had trouble in dealing with some of the concerns around fraud. There have been many fines issued over the past few years because there were people enrolled in the program who did not belong. Uh, so, and, and, and even the Government Accountability Office, you know, the nonpartisan watchdog here, did a huge study on this and found, I believe it was like a million or so people who were suspicious on Lifeline rolls. However, dot, 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 there are also some in Washington who have used the fraud piece as cover to try to take apart this program because they generally don't feel that it should be Washington's responsibility to offer it. And we saw a lot of this during the Trump administration when the Federal Communications Commission under then-Chairman Ajit Pai proposed a series of reforms that he said were about cracking down on fraud, but lots of lifeline defenders saw as an attempt to just gut the program outright.
1: All of this brings us to where we are now. This big pot of money that could change things. The telecoms are lobbying very hard, as every company does when there are large amounts of money potentially flowing through Washington.
2: Right. So first things first, we have a new program on the books that will happen regardless of the lobbying, right? There's a $3.2 billion program that Congress approved in December that will pay up to $50 monthly stipends to low-income Americans so that they can pay their internet bills. And that goes out the gate right now. Uh, It'll go out sometime. They haven't (laughs) finished the process of writing the rules for it, right? And we think that once they check all the boxes and get all of the Programs and stuff ready to offer it that we're probably talking end of April, beginning of May. Mm -hmm. And you know, we in journalism are taught sometimes to not use the word historic to describe things because it's kind of hyperbolic. But it is fair to say this is historic. We have never had a program like this of this size, paying this much money to this many people to help them afford internet.
1: The plan could potentially help the 18 million Americans who don't have access to high speed internet, the students who've been trying to make remote school work on slow connections. The people like Harold Valentine from Tony's Story, who are rationing their cell phone minutes. But even this big pot of federal money is temporary. Figuring out a longer-term solution will likely fall to the Federal Communications Commission, which oversees Lifeline. And then there's going to be this moment of, uh uh-oh,
2: now what? Because there are lots of people who have been then getting federal help, including perhaps some families who had no internet before this $50 benefit came into effect— Who are going to be faced with this cliff, in the words of Jessica Rosenworcel, who is the chairwoman of the FCC now. They are at risk potentially of losing that internet that they just got uh, unless Congress does something more lasting.
1: Yeah, this feels like a moment where things could actually change for folks who rely on these plans. Do you think they will? (sighs) <sighs> it's my
2: deep sigh because I have to admit I'm more of the cynic. You know, I've I've been covering the tech industry, the telecom industry for about a dozen years now, and I don't think at any other point in my career has there ever been such a collective understanding about the problem of the of the digital divide and the role that Washington could play in fixing it. You know, even during the 2009 stimulus, uh, there was there were billions of dollars set aside for broadband. And people fought tooth and nail over it. No, some people couldn't even understand why the government was paying for it in the first place. Here we are, what, more than 10 years later, and we're talking about sums that are like 10x what the government spent back then. And there's much less partisan opposition to some of this stuff because Democrats and Republicans of like have seen what it's like back in their states and districts it's all gotta depend on Congress. And that's where I think people get a little bit nervous because there, you know, on one hand, there's now a deadline and sometimes deadlines force Congress to do stuff faster. Um, on the other hand, we have been talking about these issues for um, probably longer than I've been alive, I guess in one context or another. And so I think that there's this lingering fear that we could be in yet another one of those situations in which we finally have the energy and the reason to do something and then Congress kind of misses the opportunity.
1: Tony Rom, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Tony Rom is a senior tech policy reporter at the Washington Post. You should check out his story on Lifeline. You can find a link to his reporting in our show notes. All right, that's it for us today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Allison Benedict and Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And I want to recommend that you go back and listen to Wednesday's episode of What Next. It really helped me understand why there are so many anti-trans bills popping up in legislatures around the country, and what their effects may be. All right, Mary Harris will be back on Monday. Have a good weekend. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.